we begin again talking about loving God. I'll tell you what, I'm gonna I'm gonna split you guys up. I'm gonna have Zeb and Kevin. If you can both come help me pass these handouts, please. You guys can take one side and one the other. I think there'll be enough to go around. We are still talking about loving God as the primary principle of the Christian life. And this is this is number ten. And so after this evening, we have two more lessons to go in this, in this study series on loving God as the primary principle of the Christian life. I hope that you all are to the place where you realize that being a Christian and serving Jesus has so much more to do uh, than just going to church, even reading our Bibles and praying. All of the activities that we, can, that we participate in can become ritualistic if we allow them to. Um, we can do so many things just going through the motions, just, just going through the motions, and, and it, it loses its meaning and we can grow dry and dusty in our souls and uh, we need to keep our romance alive. Amen? Amen. So we are taking this time on Sunday evenings to talk about loving God, the primary principle of the Christian life. We, I still didn't do enough, okay? I'm sorry. How many of you have the handout? So most, most of you do. We almost made it all the way to the back. If you, maybe, maybe couples can share. And All right, I think we're doing okay. We were made, though, friends, we were made for more than religious activity. We were made for relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so we are taking this phrase, I believe it's printed there on your handout, it's also on the screen, this is a definition for loving God based on a sermon by John Wesley, to love God, read it with me, to love God is to self-sacrificially commit oneself to delight in Him, to rejoice in serving Him, to desire continually to please Him, to seek one's happiness in Him, and to thirst day and night for a fuller enjoyment of Him. I mentioned to you this morning, having heard someone talk about the fact that the message of the gospel is good news. That's what gospel means. It means good news. And every aspect, there, there's so much of, uh, of Christianity and so much of the gospel message that is associated with negativity these days, and especially in the culture that we live in, we are known more by what we are against rather than what we are for. I wonder how it would change people's perspective if we would approach our Christianity uh, from a perspective of loving God and we lived it out in a daily walk, a daily relationship with God in a way that people could see uh, that it is something, uh, you know, what is there about this 
definition that's negative. I suppose we could look at the aspect of self-sacrifice and see that as a negative. Uh, but if you look at what follows, it is the giving of one thing in order to gain something better, to gain something more. Amen? So to self-sacrificially commit oneself. So I'm going to lay aside my wants and my desires and my natural uh, instincts and pursuits in order to delight in God. Delight. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It's good to find delight in something, to rejoice in serving Him, to please God, to desire continually to please Him. Those are all good things. Amen? I'm happy when I make people happy. I'm happy when I please people. I, it bothers me if I have the... In, now, I understand. I, some of you may be thinking, you're a, you're a preacher, you're a pastor of a church. Uh, I hope you realize that you're not going to make everybody happy. Yes, I, I realize that. Anybody uh, that uh, tackles... A, uh, a job that involves leadership, that involves uh, multiple people. You know, someone has said leadership, a good definition of leadership is deciding who you're going to disappoint. And there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but it bothers me if I, if I think that somebody is unhappy with me. I was telling, I was in conversation telling somebody yesterday you know, the only reason I really want people to be unhappy with me is if God is using me to speak truth into their lives and they are experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If God is using me to bring conviction, then I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. But I want to know, I, I especially desire to know that God is smiling down on me, that I have His smile of approval on my life. I'm desiring to please Him. The next part that we are looking at of this definition of loving God is seeking our happiness in Him. Seeking our happiness in Him. There are a number of verses that we could read. I thought about uh, Psalm 16, verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That sounds like a good life, doesn't it? Well, I think it sounds like a good life. Amen. We could also look here at these verses from Psalms 36. Psalm 36, verse 7 through 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. If we lived like this was true, I think maybe more people would want to find out what makes us tick. Too many times, and I, I understand that I am I'm guilty of this. I, Lord help me. Where I used to work, uh, 
in, in the uh, healthcare environment. I, I walked everywhere. I was telling somebody this morning I had a job that covered all the departments of the hospital, so I walked all throughout the hospital where I worked. And I am not a, a naturally smiley person. I tend to be pensive, thoughtful. And uh, so a lot of times I've just, I would, as I would walk around going about my responsibilities, my mind was somewhere else, and I'm thinking about who knows what. And I remember a few times, multiple times, people would, would talk to me and would say, why don't you ever smile? And I would have to tell them, well, I'm not particularly unhappy. I'm just, just thinking, just, just thoughtful, just lost inside my head. And I would say, Lord, help me somehow for people to know that knowing you is a good life. Living for the Lord is a good life. Amen. Do you believe that? Three of you, okay. Um, we, ought to, we ought to be people who seek our happiness in God and, and realize that if, if this is true, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. We ought to expect to show the world what it is to be a happy, healthy Christian. Now, a lot of people just don't understand what happiness is. I read somewhere today, somebody, kind of a smart aleck, had this to say about happiness. They said a cheese sandwich is better than complete happiness. Because nothing is better than complete happiness, and a cheese sandwich is better than nothing. Isn't that awful? You know, happiness is not just getting what you want. Most all of us relate to this. We usually want what we don't have. If we are tall, we wish we were a little bit shorter. If we are shorter, we wish we were a little bit taller. If we are thin, we tend to wish we were a little bit more thick, unless we're thinking we're too thick, in which case we usually wish to be a little more thin. If you have one color hair, you may wish you had a different color hair, and sometimes you don't think you have enough hair, in which case you usually wish you had more hair. We usually wish for what we don't have, right? And uh, so, so really getting what we want is not the secret to happiness. Um, but the reality is, I believe this statement to be true, God made us to be happy. Do you believe that? Some of you may have to think about this for a little while. God made us to be happy. In the founding of our nation, the writing of the Declaration of Independence, our founding fathers wrote this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men 
are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. Pascal, a a, uh, philosopher from years gone by, he had this to say about happiness. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Regardless of the different ways they try to find it, they are all looking for the same thing. It is the reason some go to war and that others avoid it. The will never takes the least step except to achieve this objective. This is the motive behind every action of man, even of those who hang themselves. Happiness. Pursuit of happiness. Thomas Boston was a man who was a Scottish pastor in the early 1700s. He said this, Man is a creature that desires happiness and cannot help but desire it. The desire of happiness is woven into his nature and cannot be eradicated. It is as natural for him to desire it as it is to breathe. And nothing but an infinite good can fully satisfy the desires of an immortal soul. God is all good, and all that is good is in him, so that the soul, finding God equal to its desires, needs nothing besides him, and therefore should not and cannot fully rest in any person or thing but God, who alone is able to satisfy all its desires and afford it that happiness which it earnestly pants after." The pursuit of happiness. God made us to be happy. John Wesley had this to say. God made all things to be happy. He made man to be happy in himself. He is the proper center of spirits. You see this idea that God made us to be happy. All of these men that talked about happiness, the pursuit of happiness, and how God made us to be happy, this all comes from men who thought long and hard about the human condition in light of who God is, and based on their understanding of God's Word and all that it reveals about God and about humanity, this is their conclusion, that God made us to be happy. But when we say this, God made us to be happy, we think about what it means, what happiness means, and what is involved. It would behoove us to take a few minutes to look at what we mean by happiness. What is this happiness that we're talking about? We ought to talk about a biblical view of happiness. Do you know that the Bible talks to us a lot about the happiness of mankind and what is involved. Let's take a few moments and look at a few verses of Scripture. Psalm 146, verse 5. Psalm 146 and verse 5. And maybe as we read through these verses, we'll pause now and again to hear your comments. If you have any comments or thoughts that you would like to mention, um, Psalm 146, verse 5, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God. Next verse, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 13. 
Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. Let's look at one more before we take a moment to hear your comments. Job chapter 5. It's maybe surprising that we might find something about happiness in Job. Job chapter 5 verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves or corrects or disciplines. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Anybody have any thoughts or comments about any of these verses or these thoughts before we go on? Sister Sheila, yes. Yes, happiness is to know the Savior living a life within His favor. Sure. Yeah, I'll buy that. Anybody else? What do you think about that verse from Job? That the one who is blessed, and, and by the way, this, I'm going to mention this again here in just a few moments, but there are, uh, there are two words. The Hebrew word, I believe, is ashrei, and the Greek word that, that we typically see the word in the New Testament is makarios, something like that. It's translated variously. Sometimes it's translated as blessed. We see it in the New Testament in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. Um, we see it here in, in these verses that we've read. Most of these, I'm guessing, I haven't, I haven't looked at them all, but most of them, I'm guessing, is the Hebrew word ashrei. And they're sometimes translated blessed, but the, the general idea, the meaning behind that word blessed is the idea of enviable happiness. In fact, in Jesus' statements in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, we can translate that into English as, oh, the blessedness, it's a, it's a, it has an exclamation point at the end. Oh, the happiness of the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That, that kind of statement. Let's go on and look at another one from the Proverbs, Proverbs 14 and verse 21. Proverbs 14, 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Happy is the one who is generous to the poor. Let's look at one more, Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 and verse 22. We could also, I've, I've mentioned the Beatitudes, we could go through there, we could look at Psalms 1, uh, there are very many passages of Scripture that we could look at and, and talk about these ideas. Romans chapter 14, verse 22. <clears throat> let's, let's back up to verse 20 and get a little context. 
Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Blessed is the one, happy is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. You might be more familiar with the King James reading of this that says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. What that means essentially is if you believe something to be wrong, it is wrong for you to engage in it, whether it really is wrong or not. <laughs> Are you hearing me? <laughs> if we believe something to be wrong, whether or not it's stated clearly in God's Word, if we believe it to be wrong, then it is wrong for us. If I believe something to be wrong, it's wrong for me. You might be able to engage in it with no problem. If you believe something is wrong, it's wrong for you. You might watch me engage in that thing that you believe to be wrong uh, and say, oh, I just don't see how Brother Bender can do that and keep a clear conscience. Well, that's what this verse is talking about. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. There's, that's... That's a whole nother message, this passage of Scripture. That's a whole nother message, so I'm not going to dig into that. But what we're looking at is the, is the biblical view, the biblical understanding of happiness. What is it to be happy, to be really happy? We think of happiness, the typical understanding of happiness in our culture, our world today, has, may have to do with feelings of euphoria or glee or, or, or simply a general cheerfulness. You know, we, we get up, we've had a good night's rest, uh, the coffee is great, uh, the toast is not burnt, the general conditions of life are good, and, you know, you can sit in your easy chair or what have you, whatever it is you like to do in the mornings, and just, oh, life is good, and that's, that's happy. For a number of years, the TV talk show host, Oprah, carried on a running public battle against her excess weight, and if you, you don't have to have really been in the news at all to remember this. It would be often on the front pages of the tabloid magazine covers as you walk through the checkout line when you pay for your groceries. And she was in an ongoing battle with her, with her weight and for her health, and, and she would take some weight off, and then it would very quickly go back on again. And until in 1993, Oprah found a new personal trainer named Bob Green, and he gave her a 10-step program in order to help her get the weight off and stay healthy. And, 
and gave her, you know, practical things like exercising five to seven days a week at a certain intensity level for a certain amount of time, and, and those were things that helped. But what really made the difference, what turned the tide for her, was helping her to understand why she wanted to eat so much in the first place. Quoting from Oprah, she said this, For me, food was comfort, pleasure, love, a friend, everything. And she said, I consciously work every day at not letting food be a substitute for my emotions. People, this kind of statement could be repeated time and time again. For some of us, it may be connected to food. To others, it may be uh, connected with alcohol or, or drugs or illicit relationships or or whatever. Sometimes it can be something totally innocent. You know, I've seen so many moms and dads living vicariously through their children in their sporting activities. I, I don't have anything against uh, my children playing sports. I think it's a little bit ridiculous that you can make millions of dollars playing a game. That's kind of silly. But uh, you know, for them to play and enjoy their games, athletics, I don't have anything against that. Um, but what I've seen happen too many times is moms and dads who didn't get to live out their own dreams in a certain activity or a certain area of life, and they push their children in that area. In fact, one of the most famous uh, professional tennis players from, oh, he was probably from the late 80s or maybe 90s, Andre Agassi, I don't even know if I'm saying his name right, but according to his own story, his biographical information, he was miserable, and he was a champion tennis player, but the only reason he became a champion tennis player was because he had a father who was pushing, 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 and his father was vicariously living out his dreams through his son. And Andre Agassi said he, he ended up really with a life he never wanted to have, a miserable life. He never really wanted to be a tennis player. <laughs> and that was his, his career. The word that the Bible gives us is better translated, and we've read it numerous times already, already talked about it, the word blessed. Oh, the blessedness, oh, the happiness of the man. We mentioned Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of waters that brings forth its fruit in its seed. That, I mean, that sounds like a wonderful life, doesn't it? Oh, the blessedness, oh, the happiness of that man. So you see, friends, when we look at things like the Declaration of Independence, where our founding fathers said things like we're, uh, we're all created equal with inalienable rights, uh, among which is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, and then we read from Pascal that said all men seek happiness, what they refer to is the satisfaction or contentment that comes from attaining what men consider good. 
And that's not a problem unless men consider things good that God does not consider good. And that is what we see in the world that we live in today. <clears throat> I can remember as a teenager thinking how bad I'd hear, you know, my parents and other adults in the church talk about how, how bad conditions were in the world. I remember when uh, immoral relationships crept into the highest office of our land and just what a, a tragedy that was for our country and thinking, my, how far things have gone. And now look where we are. These 30-something years later, we live in a society that's gone even farther from the moral foundations that we understand are connected with real goodness. And people have this understanding that you can pursue anything you want to that makes you happy or that makes you feel good. So what is true happiness? What is biblical happiness? Well, friends, biblical happiness is the satisfaction that comes from attaining what is good from God's perspective. It is the happiness or the contentment, the satisfaction that comes from attaining what is good from God's perspective. You see, humanity started going wrong from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when we read that Eve was tempted by the serpent to partake of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And she was tempted, first of all, to question what God had said. Has God really said you should not eat of this tree? And the serpent said, oh, no, God knows that the day that you eat thereof, you will become as God, knowing good from evil. And you see, a, a partial truth is a whole lie. A partial truth is a whole lie, and that's what the serpent did. That's what the devil did. He told a partial truth. What is really intended by that statement, you will become as God, knowing good from evil, is you will become as God defining good and evil for yourself. And so from that moment on, humanity began pursuing their own selfish interest in trying to define what is good for themselves. And it has brought into the world untold heartbreak. And people may wonder, well, what if, you know, <clears throat> I remember as a young person um, wanting to find a young lady to marry and wanting to be happy in that and struggling against God's will for my life. And I, I remember hearing one preacher talk about this uh, and, and he was struggling with the same thing, and he said uh, the devil would, would suggest and talk to him, God's probably going to have you marry uh, <clears throat> some gal that she may love the Lord, but she's probably going to be pretty homely, pretty plain, 
And if you really submit and surrender to God's will, you're not ever going to be able to be really truly happy. And friends, that is the lie that the devil has used from the very beginning of human history to turn us away from God and God's way. God wants his people to be happy. I'm confident of that. And our happiness comes when we turn away from self-interest and self-will and submit to God's will and say, God, I'm going to trust you and your definition of what is good and evil, what is right, what is wrong, and follow that. And in that, we will find that God has happiness for you and for me. That doesn't mean everything's going to be a bed of roses, but it means that even in our problems and even in our troubles, we can find happiness in knowing Jesus. Amen. Finding and attaining what is good from God's perspective. To love God is to self-sacrificially commit oneself to delight in Him, to desire continually to please Him, and to seek one's happiness in him it's okay to seek happiness just seek it in knowing god amen let's stand together please holy father thank you for your help lord jesus the devil would try to distract us by the with the bright lights and the loud music, the, the attractions of this world, the pleasures of this world would draw us aside, would draw our young people aside, would try to convince us to define for ourselves what is right and what is wrong and to pursue our happiness with our own means. Lord Jesus, would you help us to be people who submit our wills fully to your will, to trust you, O God, to define what is good and what is not good. And then, Lord, help us to be people who pursue our happiness in you. And then to show the world that Christians are happy people, that it is a wonderful way, a wonderful life to serve and follow Jesus. And Lord, may they be drawn to you, attracted to your kingdom. We trust that you'll go with us from this place. Make us a blessing to someone this week. And we'll thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.